Hello and welcome to What Our Point Weekly, where we bring together a variety of perspectives to discuss the biggest stories of the week and decide what our point, or if in fact there are no point at all. Please, if you like what you hear, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at What Our Point. Today it is Monday, July thirteenth, and we have Ben and Dan as usual. Hello. Hello. And then we also have Bill Chang, our resident economist. What's going on? So I wanted to talk about this week how money enters our economy. So this, I guess it's coming up at the end of this week, the uh, $600 supplement to unemployment is about to run out. So a lot of people are not going to be able to pay bills in the same way. Um, We've also just injected a ton of money into the economy since the beginning of this crisis, uh, trillions of dollars. And I was wondering, um, as we approach the election year, every year there's an argument over balancing of the budget and the deficit. And since I was a kid and people were talking about the deficit, I've never quite understood it, especially when it got to the time when the Republicans were shutting down the government every time we had to pass a new budget. So um, when we've passed all these bills that allow people either to just get a $1,200 personal check or if it's the PPP loans and it where it that, that seems like so much more money than the taxes that we've paid. And if, I hear every year that we are running up these debts. So Bill, where does this money even come from? Are we just printing the money? How does this work? So you can inject money into the economy in, in many different ways. Um, the easiest way uh, maybe not the, the most straightforward way would just to be just to print a bunch of them and then you just hand them out to people and then they would take the money and go spend it on whatever they need to buy and that money goes into the circulation and economy. Um, a more indirect way, you could still print the money but give it to specific industries where you can bail out certain industries that are in need of cash. Um, So then, or you can print money and then take on infrastructure projects. And once you pay those people who who built the bridges, who built the tunnels, they would then spend the money on whatever they need to buy and and that money goes into the economy. Um, Another way is to lower the interest rate um, at the Fed. Uh, what th- what this means is the money that banks will loan out to consumers are cheaper. So maybe before consumers will borrow money at 5%, now they can borrow money at 3%. And the decrease in this price, they would borrow more money and use that money to buy whatever they need. And this is another way where more money will go into the economy. And so... If we're constantly, from my very rudimentary understanding of all of this, if you are taking in more debt or printing more money, then you run the risk of inflation and prices going up. So how is that not? It doesn't seem like the U.S. has had much inflation since, what, the 70s or 80s? What is, why is that the Which case? Which was a long time ago. A long time ago. All right, so explain, Dan. Why? How have we gotten into this position where inflation seems to never go above, what is it, like 2%, 3%? 
Yeah, if that. So I think it's interesting. I think we should just set the context. The world, the people that are right now running the economy grew up in the 70s and 80s when inflation was a problem. And so these 70-year-olds that kind of like run the economy are fear-mongering about the fact that like we could have inflation. There's a couple of things that are very different about the world now than they were in the 1970s. First of all, the entire developed world has like no population growth, right? So Europe, Japan, the United States, if it wasn't for immigration, would have flat or negative population growth, which is one thing, right? If there's like more people, more spending, then that's like just immediately a damper on just, okay, we have a hundred houses right now that everyone's living in. And now if there are only 80 people to sell them to because the population is then less demand, prices go down. This is kind of my like macro simple view of this. The other thing is the internet. So one of the worries about inflation is if you think prices are going up, you want to increase the price of the thing you're selling so that by the time you actually sell it, you can like take that money and not have it lose value. If prices are going up really, really fast, you're like, oh shoot, I need to set my prices two years ahead of time of where I think like this little widget I'm selling is going to sell for. I need to say like, oh, I don't know, prices are going up. Let me just, I'll make it 10% more expensive than it is right now. With the internet and dynamic pricing, most things on Amazon are priced on like an algorithm. So, or like, you know, things on the internet. So it's like, okay, there's a certain amount of demand right now. We'll increase the price. If demand slips, you immediately change the price. So prices used to be what they call sticky. And so people would worry and say, oh, I can never change my prices. I need to build in all this cushion. Now you can change your price, prices in an instant because of the internet. And so there's kind of like structural factors that fueled inflation that are, I think, not there anymore. And the third thing is that like central banks have just gotten a lot better at this. They understand inflation is a bad thing. And so they're constantly looking for it everywhere. And the second they like smell, like, you know, you walk into a room and you're like, oh, is, did someone leave the gas on? Oh no, I need to like panic, five alarm panic, like shut everything down. People do the same thing with inflation. Like central bankers are like, oh, maybe there's inflation. And so then they just freak out and raise interest rates to try and quell inflation. And so we have this enormous toolkit for stamping out inflation. And so if you look at developed economies, so Europe, Japan, United States, there's no inflation and there hasn't been for decades. And yet we're like looking for inflation around every corner. And it structurally just hurts people because we're like, oh, let's keep interest rates higher than they need to be, which constrains growth. Aren't we also, Billy, you can jump in here if this isn't true, but aren't we also in a position as the world economy's reserve currency that other currencies are constantly trying to deflate their currency in respect to ours to make their, or no, to depreciate their currency in respect to ours to make their imports cheaper or exports cheaper or make make their currencies, I'm, I'm getting the words confused, but they, they basically it's impossible for the, do, the dollar to inflate in respect to other currencies because other currencies will just buy more dollars in order to make their exports cheaper. That's definitely true. I think, Dan, what do you think of, like, there are so, several things I'm thinking about right now. Like, one fact that I thought that I read recently that was interesting is that if you print a dollar and give it to someone, that's one dollar into the economy. But if, if that dollar is loaned out by the bank 
and then whoever spent that dollar is loaned out by another bank, that $1 turns into $10 of credit in the economy. So from that standpoint, interest rates actually matter much more than printing money and giving it to people. Is, is that is that right, Dan? Uh, yeah, I, I think so. And I think that's been the, const- we've been at this kind of like weird constraint where interest rates I think have been just like slightly too high for a long time in America. And to your point, if you bring interest rates slightly down, like where they are right now, right? Like there's, people have said, okay, let's take San Francisco as an example. There is this quote unquote tech exodus from San Francisco because everyone is working remotely and people are freaking out that no one's gonna live in San Francisco anymore and house prices are gonna crash. But if you look actually over the last three months, house prices are up in San Francisco because interest rates have come down so much. So all of a sudden interest rates going from Let's say if you can get a mortgage at 4% versus 2%, that's an enormous difference in your ability to buy a house. Because all of a sudden, instead of you having, let's say your rent is three grand, if interest rates are at 4%, you probably can't afford a house in San Francisco. If interest rates are at 2%, all of a sudden you can afford a house in San Francisco. And so we are, I think that is the one kind of like backdrop when I say, you know, inflation will never is not a thing in the United States. It's because we've been just like a percent or two too high in interest rates, but if we get a little bit lower, we could actually have like a somewhat growth-driven economy again because interest rates come just below this like magic point. Now there is a world I agree that they can get a little too low and we can get over credit dependent, but because of the reforms after 2008, where banks used to be able to have for every dollar they had, they could lend out 30. Now they can only lend out 10. And so that contraction from every bank being able to lend out $30 for every dollar they had to 10, we haven't really made up for that in the interest rate side, where we kind of thought, what does a 2% interest rate mean if a bank can only lend out $10 versus 30? It really means you need interest rates even lower. And so I think we're starting to get into that world, and we might be in this like new interest rate normal. But to your point, the bank, bank liquidity and bank leverage is a huge factor behind it. So wait, what would happen if inflation started if the signs of inflation happened what what would the first um, lever that would be pulled like how would we combat that just raise interest rates right that's the first thing just say like the cost of money is higher and so let think about this way right if you have if you have money that you're going to put in a bank account and their interest rate on your bank account is zero then you're looking for any opportunity in the world that's better than zero and you would put your money in that if someone said to you hey Give me your 20 bucks in your bank account. I will pay you 5% interest a year to, so I can start this business. And your bank account yields zero. You would say, you know what? I'll give it to that guy. Maybe there's a chance it doesn't work out, but I'm getting 5% versus zero. If your bank account all of a sudden pays 5% and that guy says, hey, I have a deal. I'm going to do this business. I'll give you 5% interest rate. You go, eh, I'd rather put my money in the bank because the bank is certain. And so people raise interest rates, more people pull their money into their bank accounts, and then it slows growth down and slows the like inflation spiral. And so, so I, I want to go back to this idea that other countries are constantly buying our dollars. Like I remember at the beginning of the recession or at the beginning of this COVID recession, the U.S. dollar, th- that was all trading around the world was people buying U.S. dollars. So how does that affect our position in terms of inflation and deflation and if as the world opens back up 
I, I was reading somewhere that both deflation or inflation are possible depending on which side of the economy sort of chugs back to normal first. Is it people going outside or is it businesses trying to reopen? How does that balance work? So I think I, I think the tough thing is that deflation is very dangerous. Because if you get in a world of deflation, that basically means if I keep my money in the bank, all the prices of things go down. And so tomorrow I can just buy more stuff. And if everyone thinks that's going to go on for a while, they just keep their money in the bank account. And so then what we were just talking about where, okay, I'm raising interest rates, people pull their money into the bank account, they make less loans, less businesses start. If everyone thinks that the best deal is to put your money in your bank account because tomorrow, instead of being able to buy a two-bedroom house, you could buy a three-bedroom house because all prices are going down, then that has a cascading effect and the economy will just kind of stop. And we don't really have any tool or that great of tools to restart that. And so deflation is kind of this like scary monster in money terms. So wait, can I, okay, now I want to throw in the idea of modern monetary theory. So Bernie Sanders, I guess, is the one political campaign that has put this most prominently in the cultural imagination. But um, I was, I, I got everyone to read an article about this before the podcast. And the, the entire concept is that if if you can basically print your way out of into any sort of spending, that um, there's no scenario that when you actually think and practice about how governments spend money, that it doesn't take taxes to be raised to spend it. Congress passes a bill or, or, or something happens um, where the federal government then is asks the Treasury Department to basically just lend out the money and the, and the money is then placed into the federal coffers to be sent out. There's no actual taxes behind any of this. And I guess the one interesting point that I find is that in a situation that we're in now, the other, oh, the other side of uh, MMT is the idea of a jobs benefit, I mean, a jobs guarantee. So, Bill, can you explain to us that in, I, I remember at a, another time we were talking that you were explaining that politicians are always worried about the unemployment level on one side and inflation on the other. How does this, in my mind, it seems like MMT, although it sounds like uh, somewhat divorced from reality, it, it, it does work in a way that if, if the economy ever needed more jobs, you would just automatically make them up because you're the government, almost like they do with money right now. Is that right? Yeah, I, I think in ter the way I think about this situation is the, the reason why, if we're only talking about money supply here, the only the reason why inflation would go up if you have 100% employment is because the, the last few percentage of jobs, they're not producing anything that anyone would need. So you're, you're essentially giving them free money without them producing anything in return. So you have the same amount of products in the economy, but with a higher money supply. But this is like highly theoretical because it, one, it's, it's probably not true that they're gonna produce nothing of value. They, they might generate something totally new that create a whole different economy. Um, but if you kind of assume that static environment where, where the last few percentages aren't being productive, the, the extra money will make 
the entire money supply cheaper. That that's kind of the, but it, it is within a very theoretical framework. Mm. Yeah, I, I think my concern with that article is more political than economic because because if you like i think it's one thing to agree that the government should be in charge of certain institutions like education or healthcare and have somewhat of an unlimited budget to make sure these places run well versus a situation where the government can always just say i care about x institution and we're just going to focus on that with an unlimited budget and and that is directly determined by the the voting base like that that seems i don't know that seems kind of like more like a central planned economy to me in a weird way Right. It, it does. It does open the door for favoritism, but it does in already seem like we're in that place already. Like, don't doesn't our government already choose winners and losers to an extent already? Yes. I mean, they, I mean, the way they do, they have the way they are doing it now. It, it might be the case that there are winners and losers, but their justification or their justifications are all economics based. More broadly. And I don't know if this is going to flow within the context of the podcast or whatever, but um, I find it a little bit absurd the extent to which uh, the Trump White House in particular has focused on the economy over the coronavirus. Um, and that has clearly been the main priority. And he cited countries like Sweden, which tried to remain open and they suffered a devastating blow to their economy on the same level as the U.S. did. Um, so frankly I, I i guess i'm just not really sure uh that these kinds of economic models and these kinds of predictions are accounting for the real biology that's going on i mean i do feel like in when bill brought up before the idea that uh if you if you're getting into a point where you have a jobs guarantee then it's you're having a government that's centrally planned but um it does feel like to me sometimes that uh so much of our politics or uh, of who wins or who loses in our political society are people are the people who are promising sort of proactive reforms or proactive management of the economy which is just that statement in itself is so antithetical to the whole concept that the government shouldn't be managing the economy like we're obviously in too much of the, the complexity of modern of, of just modern buying and selling and lending is so much so that the government has to be everywhere in order to deal with all of the either nefarious actors or just contracts that are coming up to enforce things but then also because because of that you you've put yourself in a situation where the government has to be there so i feel like it's sort of a you're people who pretend like you can just strip the government away from things and also strip government spending away from things and just allow the private economy to naturally elevate the the valuable parts of our society into valuable things economically that that's just never going to happen because of 
the design of our of of what the system is already like today. So in order to change it, there needs to be these proactive steps. That's what I don't understand about laissez-faire policies is that we're already in a system so there's already this momentum there's like an entropy involved and in order to change it you need to shake it or do something i don't know sorry that's my rant i think that for me the difference is isn't that the government shouldn't manage the economy it's it's the way that it does i think it's one thing it's it's one thing for the government to control money supply or control interest rates um, and then let the market decide what's valuable based on who wants to buy what what products and services versus a situation where the government has direct say in what the economy demands in, in like a very significant way. I, I think that's a that it, that has a very different flavor of management than providing the basic structures of the of an economy. Uh, what I've never understood though is stuff like subsidies. Don't we have just a huge amount of subsidies going to places like corn farmers and things like that? So our government's already choosing to to ask people to eat more corn, but they're not doing that for other it's seemingly more obvious things like I don't know. There's just so many examples. I guess education would be one. Right, right. No, you're definitely right. Yeah, you're definitely right. All right, anyway, should we pivot to the NBA like usual? (laughs) (laughs) Well, did you see... I have my scary Terry Rozier shirt on. Oh, that's good. But did you see that Woj... I thought it was actually a fake tweet that... Yeah, the fuck you thing? Adrian Wojnarowski... Um, sent a fu email to Missouri Senator Josh Hawley, yeah. who is quite a mercurial senator. Um, and when Hawley tweeted it out, saying like, "This is how ESPN responds when you criticize them," I was like, "That had to be fake." And I thought it you know, was fake as well. I thought it was fake, and then Woj responded and uh, apologized. And then this morning, gets suspended by ESPN, so he's not going to be at the bubble for now. Um, but the bubble is definitely falling apart. A little so bit. stupid by ESPN, but yeah, like, Josh Hawley is such a do. narc bitch. I'm sorry. Like, I, what I mean, fuck? listen, what's wrong what, with him? I mean, what are you doing, Woj? That I think that's yeah, Jeff yeah. Woj. It's like Holly gave them a hard time, and like, what are you responding like that for? You're a celebrity. Like, that's stop. hilarious, though. I don't know. <laughs> like, I'm I on Josh Hawley's side on this Josh one. Hawley. I'm just like, I agree. I disagree with him on everything, but come on, like, that's why are you just like out of the blue emailing him? saying that like that's so dumb it wasn't out of the blue he cc'd woge on an email to nba execs and all these he cc he emailed the nba like adam silver a bunch of gms and randomly cc'd woge and woge just replied all fuck you <laughs> he replied <laughs> all i thought so or maybe oh god it's so bad it's so bad let's let's get blue lives matter on the back of these jerseys that's clearly what's needed right now Fuck that. Fuck Well, Josh he wanted... Did you... Did you? His other comment was, free Hong Kong. Like, that is such a troll comment to send that. Like, why don't we put free Hong Kong on the jerseys? He just doesn't like that there's a hugely successful league with, I don't know, 72% African-Americans in it. Like, Josh Hawley sucks. Yes. But I do think... I don't know. I think people are... Uh, 
I think the I, I'm now on the side that the that the bubble is going to make it. They're not gonna. It's gonna. There's gonna be a bunch of problems, but it's gonna limp through. I think. I think you're insane. There's no fucking way. There's fifteen thousand new cases a day in Florida right now. Like people are amazed that the Premier League is doing so well. There's no outbreaks. Do you know how many cases there were in the UK yesterday? There were eight hundred cases. In Florida alone, there were 15,000 new cases. Like, this is, we're talking orders of magnitude here. Literally orders of magnitude. There's there's no fucking way that this is going to work. There's going to be an outbreak. Some team is going to get totally screwed over. And whoever comes out at the end of this tournament is going to have a giant asterisk on it. If it even gets to that point. Because I'm doubtful at this point. Yeah, what are your thoughts, Bill? Yeah, but my thought on that is, like, how much... Does it matter for the new cases in Florida? Like, how much do we do we trust that the place the bubble's totally locked down? It's not. I mean, there's I I, I sent this to our group chat, but there's like already an Instagram thought who's like talking about how she's got an invite and it's going to happen. It's already happened. It's it's happening everywhere. She's the only one to come out in public. Like, this is happening everywhere. You oh, can't yeah. ask these dudes to like spend three months in isolation with no one, you know, to I thought the NBA would like <laughs> procure the services in a in a more okay, in a safer okay, way. Okay, yeah. okay. <laughs> and that's actually a great idea. They should have like bubbled Twitter. You could be like a girl and sign up and you'd be vetted by the NBA and then you'd be allowed to flirt and swipe right with NBA players. As long as you, like, submitted your coronavirus test once a that day. That makes sense. I mean, like, anyone who's coming into the bubble has to be tested and stuff. So it's it's kind of like that. But, yeah, setting that up beforehand might make more sense. Also, Ben, great use of thought. Can you explain to our viewers <laughs> or listeners? Sorry. What, uh, no, I'm, what I'm not. Thought. You know, Google's a thing. T-H-O-T. <laughs> All right. What else should we talk about, Dan? So but we could talk about how Trump did the most corrupt act in the history of American politics. And one of Trump's friends, who was an advisor on his campaign, was in communication with the Russian uh, intelligence forces and was talking back and forth about all the hacked emails. And then he was Roger Stone. Roger Stone was investigated by Congress, lied to Congress to protect Donald Trump, was convicted of seven counts uh, by a jury. Even Attorney General Bill Barr, who's not exactly a neutral party, said that he thought it was a fair trial. And because Roger Stone did not rat, rat Trump out, um, his sentence was commuted uh, to serve no jail time. And Roger Stone explicitly said, I don't want to pardon because I don't want to have to admit guilt. And Donald Trump said, oh, okay, sure, I will just commute your sentence so you don't have to go to jail at all. So, kind of Kind of insane. I mean, that was coming. That was coming a mile away. It was coming a mile away, but it was still one of the f- most crazy, crazy things ever. Nixon Who has the record for pardons? Uh, I mean, they've been used frequently throughout history. So Trump hasn't actually pardoned that many people. It's just that the only people he's pardoned are his like political lackeys. But so like Sheriff Joe Arpaio, who was convicted of like torturing people in like a concentration camp that he was managing when he was a sheriff. Um, Roger Stone, who to Congress. Yeah, Rob Blagojevich, who tried to sell Barack Obama's Senate seat. 
So I'm just saying, I bet if he isn't reelected, he will set the record for pardons in his last month or something. Maybe, but there's just not that many people he's friends with that he cares about enough to pardon. That's the thing. Like some people yeah, have used I mean, it. Like he'll just go on Reddit. He'll just go on to some Reddit forum that says people Trump should pardon. Just start pardoning people. What what I was gonna say is that's actually like a whole other discussion. It's like Reddit has been banning a lot of the pro-Trump subreddits of late, and they're you know along with Twitter, one of the tech companies that are actually taking action against him, unlike Facebook. Oh, Ben, you've been uh, telling us about the the downside of TikTok for ages. Yeah, I mean, well, what's funny now is that. Uh, Trump has kind of kicked that hornet's nest, and um, I believe that certain people within his administration have said that they are looking to ban it, and um, I think in certain app stores, TikTok is starting to be um, banned or like shadow banned in certain ways, and this has kind of predictably incited a revolt among teenagers who are too young to vote but love TikTok more than anything, and I think (laughs) Trump's... um, Trump has like an official campaign app or something, and it's the lowest rated app in the history of every app store because it's getting just bombarded with one star reviews, which is pretty funny. I think it's like 1.3 out of five stars, which is pretty hilarious. I mean, I was I was really looking forward to when Trump was mad with Twitter saying that people needed to create an alternative. And I was like, oh, man, the Trump Twitter is going to be so well designed. Uh. So oh God, what's the name of that? What's it? There, there is a an alternative where like you have all the racists going. Um, fuck, what is it called? Facebook. Let me ju- let me just Google racist <laughs> Twitter. What else should we talk about, Bill? Anything that we haven't addressed yet? I mean, we can talk about China. All right. We want to, yeah. I don't know what what is what is the current situation there. It seems like China is. Tightening the fist around Hong Kong. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, I don't understand why it's that big of a deal, especially here. Yeah. Like, I like, mean, what, what, like, what's your thought? Like, of like of all the stuff that's going on, like, yeah. Well, because there was an oasis of freedom in authoritarian land, and then China just ended it. On uh, President Trump's watch, he let China do concentration camps and stamp out a city of democracy. We all knew it was coming. I think the thing, the question was like the timing yeah. of it. Everybody yeah. taking advantage of Trump's like downfall to say, okay, we're going to push this through because there's no way he's standing up to us because he knows he needs us to get reelected. I do think there's the perennial American issue of us looking over somewhere else and being like, oh man, we need to protect the democratic freedoms in this place where um, w- was it ever this democratic oasis like you just said in the first place? Not really. It was al- already this awkward political relationship between an autonomous state and the behemoth Chinese government. And then I also think that, like you said as well, it was always coming in a way. I mean, I, I think that we are democracy, freedom-loving Americans, but we like to um, always point at someone else's freedoms, and we do a really poor job of protecting those rights in our own place. So I do always agree with Bill that there is, there's always, it, there, there's always this uncomfortable, almost just, 
I don't know, you feel kind of grimy sometimes with the type of person that's constantly arguing for these democratic rights in other places in the world. It just feels somewhat disingenuous. Yeah, I, I get the feeling that the, the dialogue about China in America has it is held to a higher standard and, and a much lower level of nuance than people who are living in America that that we are able to look at America and, and be okay with some of the nuance and, 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 and the problems. I, I don't know if that makes any sense. Yeah, I think it does. And I think yeah. like a huge part of this is just the increasing polarization that's been brought yeah. about by social media and the ability to kind of surround yourself with echo chambers. I mean, this is a little bit tangential, but I think that, you know, it's so easy to just hear like-minded people and surround yourself with that kind of, that kind of thing that this breeds um, much more extreme and polarizing opinions. And I think that, you know, China hasn't been doing anything differently than they were doing in the mid nineties. It's just people are now drawing more attention to it because they are surrounded by others who say that it's, you know, a massive problem, blah, 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 conspiracy theories, et cetera, et cetera. I just think... This is a little hypocritical coming from me because I still am unconvinced <laughs> about the origins of the, the coronavirus, though at this point I'm kind of I'm kind of off of that train. But yeah. I mean, Ted Cruz will say like, you know, he'll rant about Hong Kong and China and then when someone says, hey, can we allow people to vote absentee during the pandemic in Texas? He says, no, 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 that's terrible. Don't make it easier to vote. And it's like, well, it kind of seems like those are contradictory opinions. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I think it's very unfortunate because because I can say, you know, coming from my family on the Chinese side or other people that I know in China who historically in, in the way that I've known known them have been very pro-democracy, pro-American values. When they see these hypocritical behavior, suddenly it's a sign for them to be to have some awareness that it, it's not actually not about the democracy. When people criticize China, it's it's not really about things China is doing wrong. So I, I think it's 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 quite unfortunate, actually. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think that our our country it, it it sort of goes back to the whole debate over free Tibet that was raging when I was in middle school, and the thoughts of when I would try to have these advanced middle school up late at night type conversations with my friends over if it's if um, we should value the freedom of someone like a Buddhist monk. But then you get really quickly into this, like, who am I, random American white kid, to inject my ethics and values into these cultures that I just learned about on a bumper sticker? So my thought on this is that there inevitably there will be conflicts in the world between competing agents whether due to difference in values or um, scarcity of resources. It's, it's unfortunate when those things come up, but it's also inevitable. So we, could, we should work to resolve those issues as cleanly as possible. 
On the other hand, there are also other issues that come up due to misunderstanding where problems are created where they, they don't have to be. And, and when losses are incurred because of misunderstanding, it's just totally unnecessary. So, so I think between China and America, I think on both sides, there has been a lot of misunderstanding going on recently. And you have problems that come up that shouldn't even be problems. Like, like, the, like the NBA situation with, um, with the Rockets GM, like in my opinion, that was a clear case of misunderstanding. Because you have, you have the Rockets GM who makes a comment on Twitter about Hong Kong. From his perspective, there's nothing wrong. He's just expressing his, his opinion. From, but what he failed to understand is that for, I think, most Chinese people, the issue of Hong Kong is very sensitive because it, 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 it is connected to colonialism. It, it ties up to all the racism, all, all of that stuff. Um, and it's, you know, it, it's okay, you know, when you say something that offends someone without knowing, but then to have... Adam Silver not handling it, handle it correctly, and then you have these politicians that hijack the situation to create even more problems by turning it into an issue of free speech, by turning it into an issue where the narrative here has become, you know, China wants to destroy free speech. I mean, that's just extremely unproductive. And, and then on the Chinese side, you know, suddenly canceling the whole NBA season without any willingness to talk the issue through openly. Again, very unproductive. Yeah, I think we're kind of yeah. at like broadly as a as a population, we're sort of at an empathy gap where we're at I, I don't know, the first twenty five years where everyone can talk to anyone in the on the planet via the internet. But we're not to the stage where everyone can empathize with everyone else that they're discussing or that they're talking to or, or talking about. And so there's just we're kind of in this weird transition phase, I feel like, where like people say shit over the Internet that they would never say in person to someone else. Because when you're interacting with someone, you you look them in the eyes and there's all kinds of different kind of subliminal interactions that happen. This is how we evolved from monkeys. Um, this is why we took over the planet. And I don't know, until technology improves, we're still in the very early stages of this. I think that there's just kind of this gap in uh, in like the way that we interact online versus the way we interact in person. And I think that this is like just kind of symptoms of this broader issue. It's a lonely world. It's a dark, lonely world. Bleak, bleak. That's our show for the week. Special shout out to Bill Chang for joining us, and thank you for listening. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram at WhatOurPoint. As always, stay safe and stay home, and we'll talk to you again soon. Bye now. <laughs>